This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my great pleasure tonight to welcome Peter Brown, the Rollins Professor of History Emeritus at Princeton University, and to introduce him to all of you. I'm sure that many of you are already quite familiar with his career. He earned his degrees at Oxford University and taught there until 1975. From Oxford, he moved first to London and then to Berkeley before taking a position at Princeton in 1986. Among the awards he's received are MacArthur Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Kluge Prize for Lifetime Achievement from the Library of Congress. And perhaps just as impressively, he was also the person who explained the great train robbery to the future Pope Benedict in 1963. <laughs> this biography, though, does little to actually capture the impact that Peter has had on intellectual life over the past five decades. Peter's rightly acclaimed as the father of the modern study of late antiquity, the period of time once so clumsily known as the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And Peter has overturned this centuries-old notion by revealing to us in brilliant detail and sharp color Byzantine and Western European stories that detail the human experiences that played out beneath the shifting colors on a political map. His Mediterranean world is not a monolith in which economic and political structures decay while the ghostly legacy of Rome overshadows all. It's instead a world of brilliant, inventive, and complicated people who eagerly explore a world filled with seemingly infinite new religious, literary, and cultural possibilities. He's introduced us to this world through 12 major monographs, the most recent of which, Through the Eye of a Needle, Wealth, the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West, was published in 2012. This book uncovers for us a golden age in fourth century Roman world in which aristocrats fill storerooms with gold. And then he shows us Roman landowners who make the rational choice to collude with nearby barbarian forces in the hope that their property would be protected and Christian thinkers who struggle with how Christian teaching can appropriately direct the energies and resources of these persistently rich people. But the real achievement of this book, like all of Peter's books, is to paint with words a series of pictures of late Roman and post-Roman life so arresting that they compel us to visit, tour, and ultimately inhabit the world from which they come. His talk tonight will bring us into this world and will focus upon Constantine, Eusebius of Caesarea, and some of the figures responsible for first shaping the contours of this Christian Roman Empire. His title tonight is Eusebius, Constantine, and the Future of Christianity. And I hope you'll join me in welcoming Professor Brown. Ed, thank you very much. You're more than kind. It's a tremendous honor for me, and as well as a great joy, to be allowed to be part of the memory of Father Eugene Burke. What is also particularly moving to me is how much that memory still lives in the bloodstream of UCSD up to this day. So it is for me a huge pleasure to find myself back on the coast of California among heroes and among friends, and particularly so as to celebrate the memory of the wisdom and vision of Father Eugene. 
But now we're dealing with a rather different person, Constantine. <laughs> Few rulers have set, in, have set in motion changes of such momentous consequences for the future of Europe as those associated with the conversion of Constantine to Christianity in 312 and his subsequent halting of the persecution of Christians that was ratified in what we now call, erroneously, the Edict of Milan, but it did happen in 313. Indeed, an air of eerie grandeur has come to surround the person of the first Christian emperor. From the medieval cry in the, leg uh, the legend of the cry of the angel, Hodie venenum effusum est in Ecclesiam Christi, today poison has been poured into the Church of Christ. A cry provoked by the legendary donation of Constantine to the Pope. Up to the very present, many theologians and religious persons have somehow held that a mysterious change for the worse in the entire quality of Christianity, such as persons of an earlier age would have been quite content to ascribe to supernatural agents, such as the devil or antichrist, appears to have been summed up in the person of one somewhat flashy Roman emperor. I mean flashy. Constantine was remembered in Gaul 150 years later, not as you might expect for his relations with the Christian church, but the fact that he invented a type of hair cream that enabled him to keep his diadem in the correct position on his head. A shiny brilliantine known in 5th century Gaul as Constantine's cream. <laughs> but even for those of less apocalyptic temperament, the figure of Constantine remains um, central. Faced by almost any legacy of the late antique world of which we happen to disapprove, and there are many of these, anti-Semitism, the secular power of the church, the rise of intolerance, the spirit of the Crusades, we tend to blame it all on Constantine. Indeed, for a significant strand of late Roman and early Christian studies, it seems that if Constantine had not existed, we would have had to invent him. Now, this afternoon, I want to cut this overcharged image of the first Christian emperor down to size. And I want to do this by asking a simple question. What did Constantine himself and the Christians of his age think that the future of Christianity would and should be? What were for them the horizons of the possible? And so, what would they settle for as the measure of their own success? I've done this because I wish to break a sort of logjam in Constantinian studies. We've become increasingly certain 
that Constantine was indeed a Christian. The Christianity of Constantine has come to be taken for granted. But do we know the Christianity of Christianity? Do we know what was the image of the future, of what was thinkable and what was unthinkable in the Christianity of the late 3rd and early 4th centuries? Or in our interpretations of the utterances and actions of Constantine, are we projecting back onto the expectations of the Christianity of his age images of a Christian future that belong to a later period. For this reason, I want to turn away from Constantine for much of this lecture to a well-known figure, to Eusebius, Bishop of Caesarea Maritima in Palestine from 313 to 339 or 340 AD. I do this not because Eusebius's relations with Constantine, which may have been less intimate and frequent than we had once thought, but because Eusebius put himself out to be eminently representative. For over a quarter of a century, Eusebius presided over the think tank connected with the monumental library of the great origin of Alexandria, who had settled in Caesarea in the mid-third century. In the words of Jean Cyrinelli, Eusebius considered that it was his vocation to act as the archivist of Christendom. And for this reason alone, he represented at least one major constellation of opinion among the bishops of the Greek East. So uh, let us turn to, to, to Eusebius. What can we find from his capacious works of his own view of the history and of the possible future of Christianity? First of all, what did Eusebius think of the, about the expansion of Christianity up to his own time? And so what did he think of the future of that expansion? On the surface, the answer's obvious. Christianity was a universal religion. Since the coming of Christ and the first mission of the apostles, it had spread, according to Eusebius, with miraculous speed to all nations and to all peoples. The phrase, to all nations and to all peoples, runs as a triumphant refrain throughout his works. But what did Eusebius actually mean by this? Perhaps not quite what we expect. Eusebius was convinced, indeed, that anybody could become a Christian anywhere. There were now Christians at the edges of the known world in barbarian lands such as Persia, Armenia, the Indian Ocean, as well as scattered all over the Roman Empire. Of that he was proud. But in many ways, Eusebius's view of the world was like the map that we can find in the website of Starbucks. On this map, 
Huge stretches of our planet, the whole of China, for instance, are marked green. For in those regions, Starbucks has arrived. What the map does not assert, and though obviously in modern business conditions the makers might hope for, was that every inhabitant of China was going, or would soon go, to a Starbucks. No, the map conveys a rather different message. The worldwide extension of Starbucks, if only for the lucky few of those, for instance, who live near the tourist zone outside the Forbidden City in Beijing, of the miraculous possibility of a good cup of coffee. Now, it's the same with Eusebius. It's vital for him to show that anybody, anywhere, could become a Christian. It was less important for him that in any one place, least of all in all places, everybody would become a Christian. What we're looking at is what I might tend to call a thin universalism. It's not a vertical universalism. It's a universalism which does not yet find room in the imagination for what I would call a majoritarian Christianity, a Christianity as a majority religion. And with this, I think we come up against the first silent but definitive restriction on the horizon of the possible of a Christian of the late 3rd and early 4th century, such as Eusebius. They could think of Christianity as a universal religion, but not as a majority religion. Now, what caused this imaginative block? I would suggest that this was because Eusebius's views on the spread of Christianity were anchored to the template of a very ancient debate. This debate had much less to do with the fortunes of Christianity on earth as with the power of the stars in heaven. It concentrated on the freedom of individual choice in a world apparently ruled by inflexible local customs, which in turn, according to contemporary astrologers, betrayed the overwhelming power of the stars. Eusebius simply applied to the worldwide spread of Christianity ancient arguments against the astrologer's picture of a human race frozen by the power of the stars. In this, Eusebius followed closely the arguments first framed in Syriac in around 220 AD in the Syriac Book of the Laws and Countries by the disciples of the Syrian philosopher and maverick Christian Bardesan, writing in um, uh, Edessa. 
Bardesan and his disciples had urged that the very fact that the customs of the nations survive, surveyed from across the world, and Edessa, you must remember, is the middle of the world at this time, on the edge of the Roman Empire, straight onto the roads of Persia that reach as far as China to one direction, and in the Roman Empire as far as Hadrian's Wall in the next. Bardesan had urged that the very fact of the nation surveyed from this viewing point across the globe, from Ireland to China, were so very different one from the other that they showed that they could not have been caused by universal and uniform stellar influences. Each set of customs, therefore, was the voluntary creation of a specific human group. Undetermined by the stars, the inhabitants of China had opted freely to create a utopia of virtue, where there were neither thieves nor prostitutes. Persians had opted to sleep with their mothers, and Irishmen, I blush for my compatriots, had favoured gay marriages. Now, this was a potentially subversive doctrine. Created by free will, the customs of societies could be undone by free will. Only the uneducated, says Eusebius, thought that such customs were immovable, as if decreed by fate. Hence a possibility that was particularly thrilling to Christians of the third century. Within each society, a group of people might arise that chose freely to live by its own laws. No inscrutable necessity bound them to obey the customs of their own region. Each chooses a life for himself, writes Eusebius, according to his own free will, not imitating his neighbor unless he chooses. Hence the worldwide extension of those who had freely chosen to live by the Namuse de Meshicha, the laws of the Messiah. And what shall we say concerning the freely chosen lifestyle, the free chairesis of the Christians? For we who hold these opinions have arisen in multitudes, in different climes, in every nation, in every region. And that was enough for Eusebius. The anti-astrological arguments propounded by Bardesan acted as the intellectual and the imaginative charter for the distinctive brand of thin universalism embraced by Eusebius. Wherever they were, Christians were free to do their own thing. It did not matter how many were doing it. A small group, let us say the Christian church, that was excavated in the 1930s at Dura Europos, dating from around 250 AD, one cult site only among 15 others in a small garrison city perched on the banks of the Euphrates, gathered in a building with room for a maximum of 60 persons. That was enough. That was enough to show that in any corner of the world, the power of the stars and its dark shadow, the imagined immobility of local custom and hence of local pagan worship 
had been broken. But there's more to it than this in Eusebius's views. This new freedom shown by the existence of widespread Christian communities revealed in the here and now the lifting of a mighty invisible weight that had cramped the freedom of the human race. Put very briefly, Eusebius shared with Origen of Alexandria and with Origen's pagan sparring partner, the pagan philosopher Celsus, a view that placed local custom in the hands of mysterious heavenly powers. As Celsus wrote, each nation follows its traditional customs, whatever kind may happen to be established. This situation seems to have come about not only because it came into the head of different people to think differently because it's necessary to preserve the established social conventions, but also because it is possible that at the very beginning of time, the different parts of the earth were allotted to different divine or angelic overseers and are governed in this way by having divided between certain supernatural authorities. In fact, the practices done by each nation are right when they're done in the way that pleases these overseers. And so it is impious to abandon the customs that have existed in each locality from the very beginning. Now, far from dismissing this pagan view, Origen showed that he shared it. He opined that Celsus's reference to divinely appointed overseers was simply a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of certain mysterious truths that had been expressed in the Hebrew Bible. He referred to Deuteronomy 32.8. Deuteronomy 32.8, when the Lord divided the nations, he set the bounds of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. But then Origen pointed out that Celsus did not understand that the majority of these overseers were far from being benign guides. They were fallen angels. They were demons who had somehow usurped the powers of the good angels who had originally been allotted to the nations by God. It was they who now tyrannized the earth. It was through their false guidance that the human race had sunk ever deeper into the toils of idolatry and to all forms of pagan cult. It was to conquer these powers that Christ had descended to earth. The notion of the re-establishment of the rule of the good angels, or better still, their replacement by Christ alone, was treated by Eusebius as the sine qua non for the expansion of Christianity on earth. His interpretation of the end of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Matthew 4, 11. 
conjures up for Eusebius a scene of Byzantine grandeur as the, as the angels of the nations came to pay homage to their true emperor. And he came too as an overseer to his own angels who were first set over the nations. These then being his own angels he thus received but those who both visibly and invisibly tyrannized over those who dwelt on the earth, he put to flight with his mighty divine power. For Eusebius, the empire of the devil was over. The gods had begun to die. Eusebius ransacked the literature of previous centuries to find stories of the passing of the gods. The cry of the death of Pan had been heard by those passing the island of Paxos as they sailed to Rome. At the same time, great storms and a howling wind had been observed by a Roman naval expedition as it scouted the North Atlantic coast of Scotland as far as the Orkney Islands. The natives told the Romans there that a local demon had died. Eusebius drew attention to the date of this account. It had happened in the reign of the Emperor Tiberius. That is, it had happened just after Christ had won his victory over the devil in the wilderness. Such events, followed by the seemingly instantaneous spread of the gospel, borne by the apostles to the ends of the earth, showed conclusively, wrote Eusebius, that a strange and divine being has sojourned among the human race. The invisible empire of the gods had been swept away as if it was a stage set, simply removed by a mechanical device. To use the brisk words of the Syriac translation of Eusebius's Theophania, his study of the appearances of God. Now it's important that we should do justice to the solid to the solidity of this imaginative structure in the Christianity of Eusebius, deeply alien though it may seem to modern persons. For the important thing is it placed the weight of the expectation for the victory of the church on a different foot from that to which we're accustomed. It is very much the back foot. What matters is not the forward step of Christianity destined to a glorious future on earth. Rather, Eusebius conveys the sense that the present progress of Christianity on earth is no more than the aftershock of a massive earthquake that changed the substratum of the invisible world itself many centuries before. The progress of the church on earth was the realization of a far greater triumph already won in the invisible world. And hence a view of history which is often disorientating to us. To take one small but revealing example, if we were to fix the date for the end of paganism, 
I think we would be unlikely to pick the reign of the Emperor Hadrian in the second century AD. Yet this is exactly what Eusebius did. For it was the, in the reign of Hadrian, when Christianity was already reaching its peak, writes Eusebius, that human sacrifice was officially abolished. For Eusebius, human sacrifice represented the nadir to which the false demonic overseers had dragged the human race. In, in its passing, in the reign of Hadrian, made splendidly visible on earth the definitive end of the invisible rule of the gods. With Eusebius, therefore, we're looking at a view of historical process where what we would call historical causality, a chronological succession of events linked to each other by cause and effect, this sort of causality is much less important than a mighty doubling, a doubling of visible and invisible. What happened visibly on earth was, as it were, a direct aftershock of events that were happening or had happened in the invisible world. Where Eusebius makes this attitude clearest is not so much in his views of the Roman Empire, nor even his views of Constantine. It was in the history of the Christian church itself. For here the pulse of divine energy was most constantly present, and its concrete manifestations occasioned the greatest wonder. For in the Christian church, the invisible persistently and triumphantly attained visibility. The church, indestructible and inconquerable, suddenly appearing, to use his words, remains the center of Eusebius' view of history. It is a history of what one might call the dramatic visibilization of the church. Now, when we turn to Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, what strikes us in his account of the last and greatest persecution is that he presents this persecution of the Christians as a war, a conflict between visibilization and devisibilization. This conflict determined what Eusebius chose to emphasize in his account of the persecutions. Thus, the destruction of the Christian churches, ordered by the Emperor Diocletian in 303, gave Eusebius a magnificently concrete object on which to focus his sense of a remorseless battle between visibility and forcible devisibilization. By destroying the Christian churches, the persecutors had for a moment attempted to make Christianity invisible, afanis. Through the rebuilding of the churches, Christianity was revisibilized in the most concrete manner possible. For this reason, the sermon which Eusebius preached in Tyre in around 315 as the news of Constantine's conversion had trickled into the east to celebrate the rebuilding of the principal church of the city of Tyre represents, in the words of Philip Rousseau, 
in his very thoughtful study, The Early Christian Centuries, Eusebius's most famous essay in optimism. For Bishop Paulinus of Tyre had gone out of his way to visibilize the church after a dark moment of devisibilization. Paulinus had deliberately insisted, despite much pressure to find a less contested site, on rebuilding his basilica on top of the ruins of the previous destroyed church. More than that, so Eusebius claimed, he ensured that the splendid new basilica was approached by a wide, flat courtyard. This courtyard was a memorial in itself for its smooth surface level, level with the ground, reminded visitors of the utter flattening of the previous Christian church. The new church was to be almost the relic shrine of a building martyred in the great persecution. In this theme of visibilization, I think, we can come a glimpse of Eusebius's own view of the Christian future. What he wanted was the exaltation of the church. His mental furniture did not necessarily include the idea of anything as grand as the eventual creation of a majoritarian Christianity through the Christianization of the Roman Empire as a whole. To claim that he did envision such an event, I think, is to read back into the early 4th century the expectations developed in later generations. At the time, victory and visibility was enough. And this was a victory judged in terms of the realization of goals that had filled his mind and his imagination for almost half a century. A widespread church whose sheer extension, though spread thin, had defied the power of local custom, flouted the malign influence of the stars, a recognition of only through a few dramatic episodes analogous to the cessation of human sacrifice in the age of Hadrian, of the fall of the evil empire of the demons, a church invincible and undespaid, ready for exaltation in the world. We must not forget that Eusebius was not alone in nourishing these ideas about the future. A Coptic Manichaean document, which dates from the age of Constantine, the Sermon on the Great War, contains very similar hopes. As befitted an apocalyptic text, which described the struggle at the end of time, the Sermon on the Great War allowed itself to be more unrestrained in its hopes for, for the future than did Eusebius. The daring Manichaean contemporary of Eusebius could even envision a time when the temples for the gods of this world will become a dwelling place for the elect and for the holy church of Mani. At that time, the elect would enjoy the position which the Magi, the religious leaders of Persian society, are in now. Now, Eusebius never set his sights that high 
in his image of the future. But it's evident that the wind of change blew through both groups. The Manichees expected that a great patron, o patron unodja, a great patron would arise. Under his protection, the elect will lie at the tables of the crown-bearing ones. Above all, the visibilization of the Holy Church of Mani would be complete. Here, as exactly in Eusebius's ecclesiastical history and life of Constantine, the key word transliterated from Greek into both Coptic and Syriac was parousia, parousia, freedom to speak aloud, freedom to at last be fully visible. For both Eusebius and for the unknown Manichaean author of the Sermon on the Great War, parousia meant above all freedom to be heard, freedom to make a noise, freedom to read aloud the great psalms of Mani to groups of Manichaean devotees, or for Eusebius, freedom to gather forever bigger and better anagnosmata, for solemn readings of the Christian scriptures in revisibilized Christian churches. With the comparison of the mental horizons of Eusebius and the author of a Manichaean text, which though it circulated in Egypt, might have been first written in Sasanian Persian Mesopotamia, we can glimpse the solid structure of a particular view of what was thought possible for, for the immediate future that was installed in the back of the minds of many religious leaders of the age of Constantine, and not only of Eusebius. This was their idea of what the future might hold in store for them. Now, of course, the $64,000 question is, did such a view of the future overlap with that which Constantine made his own after 312? My answer is, to a surprising degree, yes, it did. The world sketched from the writings of Eusebius coincided in many points with the worldview of Constantine and with his own estimate of his future as a Christian emperor. But let me first reassure you, anyone who lectures Constantine on Constantine at some time in the lecture has to reassure his audience that he's not entirely crazy. I don't mean that Constantine took his views directly from Eusebius. Rather, Eusebius, as we know, had struggled to be representative. He made use of ideas that were already in the air throughout the Christian communities of the Greek East. As a young man, Constantine had breathed this air. Up to 305, he'd lived and traveled widely throughout the Greek East. Even when he turned to the west, having been declared emperor in York, moved into Gaul, gained control of Italy and the western Balkans, nonetheless he was in contact with Christians such as Lactantius. And Lactantius, though often called a Christian, 
Cicero was in many ways a Latin Byzantine. He had taught in Nicomedia, in modern Turkey. He had always kept in mind a view of the world which was also dominated, like Eusebius's, by a fierce sense of the recovery of freedom after centuries of tyranny, both visible and invisible. So how did this worldview make itself felt in practice in the public attitudes of Constantine? Here I suggest we adopt the metaphor of the cutting of a key. As we saw in the view of the future, which emerges from a study of Eusebius, is distinguished by certain prominent features. There is a pride in the universality of Christianity. There's a conviction that the end of paganism had already, in fact, happened, that what contemporaries were faced with was an empty shell, a mere paper tiger. Last but not least, a passion for the visibilization, for the exaltation of the church. These themes stick out like the great, like the long teeth of a key. What did not stick out, did not stick out, was the sense that Christianity could be established as a majority religion. That is a sense of vertical universalism rather than the thin universalism which Eusebius treasured. Eusebius might acclaim the occasional rallying of an entire city. He might cite a letter of Constantine where the emperor announced that he was about to be larger and bigger and better churches in the new city of Constantinople so as to house ever larger congregations, though none of these churches seem to have actually happened. But the idea that all subjects of the Roman Empire might become Christian lay well beyond his horizon of the possible and that of Constantine. Nor was Eusebius unduly flustered when confronted by paganism. Faced by a religion which would not go away, despite the fact that it had been declared to be terminally retro, it was enough for him and for his fellow Christians to avoid it as much as possible. Like many other Christians, he fell back on codes of avoidance, not unlike those long practiced by Jews in their relations to idols, temples, sacrifices, and pagan festivals. Eusebius expected Christians to have a healthy sense of pollution when faced by the relics of the, eight, of the demonic old order. For him, it was truly terrible to touch an altar and to be touched by products connected with it. He described in great, with great care how when the ground beneath the temple of Venus in Jerusalem was excavated by Constantine in his search for the Holy Sepulcher, this earth itself was dumped at a distance from the site, for it had been rendered toxic by the blood of former sacrifices. He quoted with approval 
the remarkable passage in which Clement of Alexandria, seemingly the most relaxed of Christians, spoke of the instinctive shiver of horror when a Christian must feel at the presence of pagan cult, quoting Homer's Iliad 3, 33-4, just as a man at the sight of a snake starts back and trembling seizes his limbs. It's a reaction very similar to the way in which, in the words of the rabbis, the words of Torah, though they be as delicate as lilies, should cause a man to recoil from unclean things as if from the bite of a serpent. We tend to be unduly dismissive of this strong sense of taboo. But in fact, fear of pollution was a merciful device. It focused attention on a few unambiguous and concrete situations which a Christian had to avoid. One had to develop a strong allergic reaction to certain rites, to certain places, to certain objects. But the corollary of this sharp sense of pollution in some clearly defined areas of life was that pollution was not everywhere. One did not need to get hay fever allergies every time that one read a pagan poet attended an imperial audience, viewed a classical statue, when one sat with one's fellows at the games, or even when one witnessed at a distance a ceremony in which sacrifice occurred. At the very worst, these pagan things were drugs. They were recreational drugs, which Christians were expected to use with due care. By contrast, every good Christian was expected to keep off the real hard stuff. <laughs> a key cut in this particular way can open some locks, but it cannot open others. For they had come, not yet come, within the horizon of the possible. In 312 to 313, and even a general iteration later, by the time of the death of Constantine in 337, they did not yet belong to a thinkable future. And here we can return to Constantine. For it's precisely these uncertainties, the open spaces in the key, that is, which intrigue us most when we consider the measures of the first Christian emperor were faced by a puzzling shortfall between the declared Christianity of Constantine, coupled with his declared contempt for paganism, and the follow-up which such expressions seem to demand. We're dealing with the mystery of the dog who did not bark, or with an even greater mystery, especially surprising in Roman autocrats, the mystery of the dog who barked but did not bite. How can we account for these shortfalls? Now, I suggest that these areas of shortfall occur in areas where we know from the works of Eusebius and other sources, Christians were content with more limited horizons of the possible than we might expect. The issue of paganism is the most intriguing of these. 
In his utterances on paganism, Constantine made abundantly plain that he was not in favour of it. It was not without reason that his messmates once used to call him Trachala, hardass. For whenever the issue of pagan cult arose in partitions, in legal cases involving sorcery, in the regulation of public ceremonies, he gave them a tongue lashing. He came down heavily on town councillors who had attempted to make Christian clergymen turn up at jubilee celebrations in which sacrifice was involved. They would be severely punished, he wrote, if they force clergymen who devote their services to the most sacred law to participate in the ritual of an alien superstition. As for those who wish to take the auspices in public, in the ancient Roman manner, he was pointedly offhand. Go to your public altars, celebrate the rites of your custom. We do not prohibit the ceremonies of a former practice, usupatio preterita, to be conducted other than in the free light of day. It's an offhand way. As John Dillon has pointed out in his recent lucid book on the justice of Constantine, law, communication and control, an edict such as this, writes Dillon, anticipates the, ob the obsolescence of pagan religion as if the times had simply passed it by. Altogether, Constantine was a good Christian in the blunt manner that Eusebius and others promoted. He avoided the pollution of strictly pagan, pagan rituals. At the very end of his reign, he and then his son Constance were quite happy to allow the central Italian town of Hispellum, modern Spello, to erect a temple to, to his dynasty. It could, he said, be built with magnificent construction, but with the restriction spelled out that the temple dedicated to our name might not be polluted by the deceits of any contagious superstition. This meant, in effect, that Constantine could have his cake and eat it. He could have his temple, provided that it remained clean of sacrifice. Constantine was content to place a glacis between himself and pagan cult. Protected by a strict and rather old-fashioned Jewish and Christian code of avoidance, Constantine passed through murderous wars, visited ancient cities crowded with temples, presided over high ceremonies of state, surrounded all the time by known non-Christians, but sheathed as if by a second skin, by the knowledge that, as a Christian, he had remained untouched by alien, unholy things. In answer to what may have been a pagan petition mobilized at the moment that he first became ruler of the eastern provinces in 324, he gave the old religion no more than the right to keep out of his way. Those who hold themselves back, let them keep if they wish their sanctuaries of falsehood. To us belongs the shining pass of truth. In the firm words of Professor Timothy Barnes, this is not 
the peroration of a tolerant man. But then, what in the early 4th century was a tolerant man? This is a difficult question to answer, and laden with potential anachronism. It's time, I think, to abandon certain labor-saving platitudes. Let me share some good news with you. Not every late Roman Christian was necessarily a fanatic or a bigot. As Hal Drake has made plain, the notion of the inevitably coercive Christian as normative is a modern construct. It is, Drake adds, the worst sort of conceptual anachronism. Discussing Constantine's own oration to the assembly of the saints, Mark Edwards is equally trenchant. We must waive the dubious premise that a religion must be intolerant just because it is exclusive. But how do we reconstruct the notion of tolerance among early 4th century persons? To answer this question without anachronism, I suggest we go back again to, to Eusebius. Put very briefly, so as to conclude, what we're dealing with is a view of the present and future role of Christianity that reflects the horizons of the possible considerably more narrow than we might suppose. It is a Christianity with an inbuilt shortfall. It had not yet taken on the weight of a majority religion. If Timothy Barnes had told Eusebius that the first Christian emperor considered that his mission in life was to Christianize the Roman Empire, the bishop of Caesarea might have looked rather flummoxed. So massive a change was not what he meant by universal. Faced by paganism, Constantine and Eusebius also shared a common view of the present and the possible future that was mercifully myopic. It was enough to humiliate a few gods by repeating on earth Christ's previous victory over the invisible empire of the demons. Eusebius rejoiced at the occasional, one might say almost surgical, humiliation of the gods in particular sanctuaries. He hailed, for instance, Constantine's dissolution of the sacred prostitutes at Baalbek. For such cults represented for him a small island, island, almost a virgin forest of what all paganism had once been like. In that case, Constantine's action merely echoed that of the Emperor Hadrian in abolishing human sacrifice. Both actions showed that the world of the empire of the demons had already fallen. Constantine's spasmodic acts against pagan temples and rituals and the strangely take-it-or-leave-it quality of his relations with pagans and with pagan worship have become central to our estimates of Constantine as a statesman. For Timothy Barnes, these puzzling exceptions to what he, Barnes, holds to be the manifest Christian intentions of Constantine are no more than grudging concessions. 
They're the result of prudential calculations in the face of a potentially restless pagan majority. For Hal Drake and Jonathan Bardil, by contrast, the same hiatuses are a precious clue to a very different Constantine, a monarch who wished to unite all his subjects, even those who are not Christians, in the worship of some open-ended supreme being. For David Potter, in his recent excellent biography, it was the sign of a rare political talent that made Constantine not only the one of the most successful emperors of Rome, but one of history's most influential leaders. Now, this afternoon, I've tried to add a further dimension to these judgments. I've suggested that Constantine's prudence was bolstered by a distinctive worldview. Eusebius, and I suspect Christian op opinion in general, provided Constantine with a majestic script of the pre-existing fall of the gods. This script lent a sense of cosmic grandeur to his basic salami treatment of paganism. At the same time, it imposed on Constantine and on the Christians of his age a firm, if tacit, limitation of the horizons of the possible. It was enough to take out the shrines of a few gods to show the bankruptcy of them all. God in heaven had already done what mattered. The effects of God's gift victory over the evil overseers in this world was bound to show, but in God's good time, not necessary in Constantine's own days or through his own dramatic actions. Blinkered by this restricted view of the future, <coughs> Constantine was effectively exonerated from a grandiose responsibility. He did not have to push through a general Christianization of the Roman world. It left him that much more free to do other things, to fight wars, to shake up the justice system, to found cities, to invent brilliantine. Actions whose sheer diversity, the level of personal charismatic engagement which Constantine brought to them has emerged ever more clearly in all recent scholarship of the emperor and his reign. So where does this leave us? It leaves us, in effect, with two middle-aged men, Eusebius and Constantine, whose worldviews had been formed in the late 3rd and early 4th century. They stood at the very beginning of a century, the fourth century, which, in terms of the changes that it witnessed, was one of the longest hundred years in European history. Their distinctive view of the future very rapidly became out of date. I would willingly abuse your hospitality by delivering many more lectures on why this happened. It's enough to say that at the moment, in 337, it had not happened. The shift from the thin universalism of the age of Eusebius and Constantine to the thick 
majoritarian universalism of later generations was not inevitable. It cannot be derived directly from the pages of the Gospels. It cannot be assumed to have been part of the Christianness of Christianity in the second and third centuries. It represented a profound mutation in the self-image of Christianity itself. Changes in the social, it relied in fact on an adjustment of the Christian imagination spread for a whole century after Constantine. Changes in the social imagination of late Roman society as a whole that happened to one side of the strictly religious history of the period. Changes, for instance, in the relations between emperors and, and their subjects, such as our adumbrated in John Dillon's gripping new portrait of Constantine as a judge and legislator determined to project his voice into the far corners of the empire. These secular developments played a very important part. So did redefinitions of the nature of the Christian church and even thought about the meaning of time itself. All these developments played a part in the creation of the heavy substance of a majoritarian Christianity. Altogether, the history of the emergence of this particular form of universalism would involve us in the writing of a history of the Christian future that remains one of the most exciting prospects in the study of the 4th and 5th centuries AD. Now, for the time being, it's important, however, to observe the Irish adage. We must not think too sudden. Faced by the course of late Roman history, we must at all costs avoid the temptation to press the fast forward button. Many scholars speak as if only a short step, ein kurzer Schritt, it seems even more brisk in German, a short step was required for the age of Constantine to become the age of Theodosius II, the first. Now it may seem a short step to us, but it was a step over an abyss into a very different age, turned towards very different horizons of the possible. In the age of Constantine, no one knew that Ambrose, Theodosius, and Augustine stood at the end of the long fourth century. The world which would produce such figures was as yet unthinkable. By the end of the 4th century, however, things had changed. A future which Eusebius still painted in pastel colors had come to be blocked out, as it were, in solid oils. In many areas and among many circles, Christianity had come to think of itself as a truly majority religion. In around 403, Augustine could urge pagans to listen to the roar of the world, the strepitus mundi, the unanimous roar of an entire city gathered in the local amphitheater. 
they should hurry up and join what he now presented without hesitation, not only as a world religion, but as the religion of the majority of the world. Thus, it was in the maelstrom of the long fourth century, not in 312, that Christianity came of age. Whether one prefers grown-ups with all their faults to the imagined time of childhood innocence, such as often even nowadays invests the early church in the days before Constantine with the false halo of some lost golden age. That's an open matter. But one thing which we can be certain is that Constantine and Eusebius could not have foreseen what great riches as well as what disillusionments and what perils this maturity might bring. For in the words ascribed to Oliver Cromwell, he goes furthest who knows not whither he goeth. Thank you. Right, the history have been different if Julian the Apostate had ruled 30 years instead of three years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would have been a great thing. Um, think of what happened to Buddhism in China. It was almost the dominant religion in the time of, of the, the Tang. It was widely patronized by the church and the aristocracy. Slowly but surely, the Confucian mandarins pushed it back, not out of China, but down the social scale. And I can easily imagine a Christianity that would have remained resilient, but wouldn't simply not have had that degree of visibilization which Eusebius had hoped to gain. That, I think, would certainly have happened. Let's have a further scenario. Julian won the Battle of Adrianople and, to everyone's surprise, became a Christian because this was such a miraculous victory. Uh, do you think that the religious fervor of Christians during the persecution of Diocletian decreased after Christianity became, in effect, the state religion after Constantine and, in effect, was kind of like a club? No, I don't. And I tell you why. Early Christians usually had a very dim view of other early Christians. Um, so much of the putting forwards of martyrdom as a major Christian ideal, a heroic ideal, a truly a, an ideal upheld with true courage and authenticity by some, was always held up, always held up in contrast to Christian fl flocks who wanted something else out of Christianity. So I think that we shouldn't over-heroize the early church and under-heroize the, the, the post-Constantinian church. 
It somehow goes against human nature. To, to posit this, it's one of our major European myths that the conversion of Constantine brought about a general cooling down of everything. But uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, the monks of the Egyptian desert were not reacting to the Constantinian regime. Antony was, was converted in 270 AD at a time when only 20 years previously, Origen of Alexandria had written that if Christ had returned to see the condition of worldliness of the Christian church in his own days, 250 AD, he would have wept as he wept over Jerusalem. So I think the cooling off effect isn't quite the explanation. I think life becomes much more complicated, but not necessarily cooler. Professor Brown, thank you for your lecture. Um, and I appreciate that you mentioned Augusta near the end. I, I thought of another figure. I wonder if you could comment briefly on the writings of Athanasius. Where would you place him in this um, perspective on Christianity in the world? Well, Athanasius was the bad boy. <laughs> um, I think I, I'd like to know for certain, and I do think that this is where you begin to see the tip over. Because I think the notion that Christianity should be the majority religion of the Roman Empire begins with the, with the, with the assertion of bishops like Athanasius, many of whom were exiled for perfectly good reasons. They were menaced to public order. They beat up their rivals. They blocked the corn feet. They practiced sorcery. You know, the normal sort of thing <laughs> Romans uh, did if they were given a chance. Uh, already Athanasius is saying, no, I am bishop of all the Christians of Alexandria, which is a patent untruth. <laughs> But nonetheless, I think that overbidding, that overbidding, particularly among Christian groups, goes a long way towards the confident majoritarianism. That might be my, my answer. The mention of uh, Athanasius reminds me uh, another gentleman at that time called Arius, uh, who um, actually uh, at the deathbed, as I recall my history, was the one who baptized uh, uh, Constantine at the very last moment. So perhaps he was either following um, Pascal's wager or um, he wanted to make sure that he got into wherever he was supposed to go. Yes, I think that's one way of seeing it. It, it actually wasn't Arius, it was one of the protectors of Arius, who was a powerful ecclesiastical courtier, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who actually paradoxically protected the Emperor Julian when Constantine's successor, Constantius, tried to actually wipe him out. Uh, so he is a he represents, I think, the Constantinian establishment of bishops 
wanting not to rock the boat. I'm not so sure that Constantine wanted to be baptized for his sins. He wanted to be sure of victory against the Persians. And like any good Roman emperor, he sought a strong initiation to make it work. But the idea that Constantine felt polluted through being an emperor and therefore wouldn't be continue to be a, a Christian, to be a baptized Christian, I'm not so sure of that. I think he, he was taken, nobody expected him. They knew he was an old man. He was still a ferociously ambitious old man. He was out to really whack the Persian Empire. And he died just a bit too soon. He was intending to be baptized in the River Jordan. So he set high stakes for himself. That I'd like to, to wonder what happened to Greek as a language during the fourth century. What happened to Greek? Up until then, even writers of the Western Empire wrote in Greek, Christian yeah. writers. But by the time of Augustine, yeah, I think what happened to Greek in the West is a bit like what happened to French in Germany at the end of the 18th century. That is, Latin suddenly realized that they had an old, a, a terrific literary revival of their own. I don't think it's its only defect. I think there was a time, obviously, when somebody like Galen just simply said, any doctor just isn't treated as important in Rome if he doesn't at least pretend to be a Greek. Just as in, say, early 18th century Germany, French is the language of the courts. But in the ones you produced, Goethe, Schiller, uh, you don't bother with French. And I think once you produce Jerome, Augustine, Ammianus Marcellinus, who after all came from Antioch and loved the Latin he learned. I think there is a real revival of Latin. Um, not to know Greek is not a total crime. I know that's not totally welcome among classicists, but I think you do find that, um, that there is a real sense of pride in having recovered a Latin um, in, in, in inheritance no longer dominated by the Greeks. The other thing which I think we've got to be more careful about is the, the Christian church is an institution of remarkable intervisibility. Its communicative passions are very quick. And I think a lot passed orally from the Greek to the Latin world and even vice versa, that we haven't got texts for. So I think a, a Christian, even like Augustine, though he himself made a great show of not having learned Greek properly, nonetheless would have been constantly with his ear to the ground, keeping up with, with the Greeks. I think we're actually had to make it the last question in the interest of time. So, Professor Brown, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.